a reading from the book of Isaiah. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and from my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, Church of the Cross. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we ask that you'll open by the presence of your Holy Spirit our hearts and our minds to understand the word of God. And then in hearers of the word, we ask that you would give us by your grace and your power to be doers of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I had the joy of being present at all six of my kids' births. And it's really something, for example, when one of them turns 19, which is exactly what happened in our family uh, in March, my 19-year-old son hit that mark to think, wow, I was there when he was born, and now look who he is. And I feel the same way about Church of the Cross. Happy birthday, Church of the Cross. Um, I had the joy, I was pastoring Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, where Christian and Molly were members, when the Lord stirred them, and our vestry and others discerned with them, and our first church plant as a church, to send them up to Minneapolis, St. Paul, to plant a church. So I got to be there, if you will, at the birth. And I'm overjoyed I get to be here now that you've turned 19. What a mature church you are. It's like a person, we keep growing, we keep developing, we, we, hope, we hope to keep growing into the image of Christ, but what a mature church you are. And what joy you bring to so many, including Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton. So happy birthday from mom as well, if you will. <laughs> All right. We're going to study Matthew 16 together this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or there in your bulletin. Let me begin, begin with a book I read this summer. Really interesting book. It's called Lucy by the Sea. It's written by a Pulitzer Prize winning author, Elizabeth Strout. Okay, careful side note here. I can heartily, without reservation, recommend Lucy by the Sea. I cannot recommend all of Elizabeth Strout's novels. You heard it here. It's recorded. I'm holding to it. If you go and read something, go, what? Um, so, but this is a very good novel. Uh, I am a Gen Xer. It's a very baby boomer novel. So there were some okay boomer moments in it. But it's excellent. And it actually deals with the pandemic, which was really interesting to reflect on. And you have two uh, characters who have decamped from New York City. They're in Maine. They're up there to ride out the lockdowns. And one's name is Bob, a good friend of Lucy's. And they're out for a walk one day. They often take a walk, as so many of us did uh, during the pandemic. They're out for a walk. And they talk about all kinds of things. They're kind of exploring elements of life that they just didn't have the time before to explore. They're both generally irreligious people. But out of the blue, Bob asks Lucy, there by the sea, he says, Lucy, do you believe in God? And Lucy replies, well, Bob, it's not like I don't believe in God. Perfect. That's like the perfect American answer, I think. I'm not committed to atheism, which some are, but actually relatively few. But nor am I committed to a full-hearted embrace of believing in God and all that would mean. It's not like I don't believe in God. That's exactly how she answers one of the most important questions that I would argue a human person can be asked, do you believe in God? Jesus this morning 
In Caesarea Philippi, the location is going to be very important to us understanding what Jesus is teaching in this passage in Matthew 16. Jesus asks a question very like the question Bob asked Lucy. He asked it of his friends. He asked it of his pupil. He's organized kind of a rabbinical school where he's teaching them the things of God. And he then asked them, who do you say that I am? A profoundly consequential question. And how we answer that question, how they answered that question had great consequences. And indeed, that question through the ages, from the Bible, from Jesus, is asked of us as well. Who do we say, who do you say that Jesus is? That has great effect on our lives with God, whether we'll have a life with God or not in terms of how we answer that question. But I would also argue that how we answer the question of the identity of Jesus will lead to another extremely important question. That question is, who am I? And how we answer the question, who is Jesus, will have everything to do with how we answer the question, who am I? Interestingly enough, my name, uh, excuse me, Lucy by the Sea is the fourth in a series of four novels about Lucy Barton. The first novel is My Name is Lucy Barton. And actually you're, tr you're kind of tracking with Lucy as she asks the question, who am I? It's four novels about identity. I think it's fascinating in the fourth novel, a key character asks her, do you believe in God? Because those questions are profoundly linked. Our bold declaration, like Peter's, of Jesus' identity will lead to the possibility of our own brave discernment of our own identity. As we boldly declare who Jesus is, we can bravely discern who we are. As we boldly declare who Jesus is, we can then bravely discern who we are. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus does in the text. He asks, who am I? Peter gives an answer, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Messiah and Christ, same, same word, anointed one in two different languages. You may be familiar with one or the other, or maybe you're not familiar with the other one. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And rather than reflect and unpack for Peter, which he actually is going to do this in the next passage in Matthew 16, who he is, he actually doesn't turn to who he is. He turns the whole conversation to Peter. You are Peter. Bar-Jonah, and we'll go into that. He actually talks about his identity. Why? Because the identity of Jesus and who he is tells us who we are. Now, this is a historical moment between Jesus and Peter. On one hand, this is unrepeatable. This is what's called the, the confession at Caesarea Philippi, where, where Peter, by God's grace, by, by the Father's actions, reveals who Jesus is. So one level is unrepeatable. But I would argue, based on the rest of scriptures, it's a repeatable reality in the life of every human being who has the opportunity to answer the question, who do you say that I am? And the way Jesus teaches Peter about who he is is exactly the way he teaches us who we are as well. There are marks, he says, he says to Peter, there are two throughout the Bible about marks of who we are. And these psychologists will sort of describe three key components to human identity. Three things that make up a person. One is significance. The human person has, must know, if they know their identity, that they have significance. They have a purpose. Two, worth. 
The human person must know, if they're to have healthy identity, that they have intrinsic worth as a person. Three, belonging. The person is always asking, where do I belong? Do I belong? And if they can answer the question, here's where I belong, that will have an incredible influence on their identity. Significance, worth, belonging. Jesus speaks to each of those when he speaks to Peter. He'll speak to the significance of human agency. That indeed, part of our significance, key to our significance and our purpose is we have a choice. You can make choices. Sometimes our choices may be very limited by our life circumstances. But we always have the capacity to make a choice. We'll get into that. Jesus will speak to the worth of Peter's identity. He'll particularly identify him as a child. We'll get into that. That part of who we know as followers of Jesus and believers in God is we have, a, we have the worth of a child. And three, he talks about power of belonging to the church. He rarely speaks of the church. He just really taught on the church. We get much more of that in Paul's teachings and Peter's and James and John. But here Jesus speaks of the church. Pay attention when he does so. And how important it is and powerful it is to belong to the church. All right, so let's, let's, let's work this out. Get your bolt in front of you or your Bible in front of you. We'll break it out. Okay, we have the significance of choice, verses 13 to 16 in your passage. We have the worth of children, verse 17. We belong to the church, verses 18 to 19. Look with me at 16 there. Okay, Jesus comes to the district of Caesarea Philippi. That's an area north of Jerusalem. They're settled in this place. And he asks his pupils, his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So the first question is actually a little bit more objective. And they give him different answers about who people are saying he is. John the Baptist, Elijah, an Old Testament figure, Jeremiah, an Old Testament figure. And then Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? Now, of course, we can be caught up in the question itself. We've already addressed that some, right? There's an explicit question. But what's behind that question? What's behind that question is that Jesus is giving them a choice. Now, they don't get to decide who Jesus really is. He is that he is, or I am that I am. But he gives them a choice, and he gives us a choice. What do you think about me? You can actually decide that. Very important to personhood. Very important that that dignity and that reality, that the human person has agency. Indeed, God sets up our existence like this. Now, our initial existence, Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2, as if you know, if you know that part of the Bible, um, Adam and Eve didn't say to God, could you create us? That would be a logical impossibility, right? So he creates them. That's God's fiat. God's yes. God's initiative. God's decision. That's his decision. But after he creates them, he immediately presents them with a decision. And he says to them, there is a fruit of the tree of good and evil. Don't eat from it. Which is to say, you have a choice whether you will eat from it or not. From the very beginning, intrinsic to human personhood, prior to the fall, God gives the person a choice. We were designed with that. That is significant. That gives us significance. It's very important we remember that. When I was entering Wheaton College, 
um, like we have some, some Wheaties. Um, as a freshman, many, many, many years ago, you started with a backpacking trip. And uh, back in the day, they used to give you like 10 books to read. And they were, they were hard books. And one book was by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist, psychologist, Holocaust survivor. And Viktor Frankl wrote a book in reflection on his Holocaust experience called Man's Search for Meaning. At the heart of that book, he makes this argument, which is an argument that he then, um, through a series of philosophies, developed. He said this, everything can be taken from a person but one thing. It's the last of the human freedoms. It is to choose. I'm going to listen carefully to somebody who's gone through what Frankl's gone through and has the training he's gone through. He doesn't come at it from a Christian perspective. He was a believing Jew, a devout Jew. So now we have a choice that Jesus is putting in front of his followers. Who do you say that I am? That choice has an additional urgency. If it's actually, as if it wasn't enough for you to say, who do you say that I am? We understand that because this is Caesarea Philippi, where he's asking this question, there's actually greater import. There's even greater urgency when Jesus says this. Why? Some of you maybe traveled to the Holy Lands and had a chance to visit Caesarea Philippi, so you already know some of the background here. But first of all, what's important to understand is this location. There's actually a cave that's here, and there's a rock and a cave that's here was an ancient location of Baal worship. Baal is a god that's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Baal is the god of fertility. There would be a way in which if you, if you offered to Baal a certain offering, you were hoping that Baal would then bless you, bless your crops, bless your family, bless you with prosperity. But the way in which you offered things to Baal got very perverse. There'd be sexual acts that would be offered to Baal. There'd be violent acts including the actual giving over of children, like sacrificing children. So what we have here is a very strange, terrifying reality in Caesarea Philippi where these acts are being done by Baal. But as the Israelite people moved on, the Greeks and the Romans would come into this area. And in a bizarre way, they continued the tradition of pagan sacrifice and worship at this very spot. They moved from Baal to Pan. Now, unless you think, if you know anything about kind of Greek mythology, that might have been popularized, Pan kind of skipping about with a little flute. Um, and he's kind of cute, you know, like a mascot. Um, that's not the Pan that was this Pan. This Pan is terrifying in his conception. Because this Pan demands everything, including literally the throwing of infants into the mouth of that cave, just hoping that Pan will have mercy on you. And Pan will give you power and prosperity. And before we judge too quickly in the desperate realities of the life that we live, and the sufferings that come and the terrors that come within this life, the sense of instability that we still, as 21st century Americans face, can you imagine in the ancient world when everything seemed to be always ready to fall in on you, you might consider doing almost anything. And indeed, people did at this very spot. This was a place of sexual immorality. It was a place of violence to infants. And there was a cave with the mouth of the cave known as the gates of hell. The idea was that from here, you entered into the underworld, into Hades. And you even that's where you would deposit children and others. Jesus is saying, right here, who do you say that I am? Right here amidst all this perversity and darkness. Because I came for these realities, to overcome these realities. 
Be assured, as a believer in the Bible, we do not shrink back from these realities. We confront the brutal facts because Christ has come and said, who do you say that I am in this face, of this cave, of this demonic power? It's an urgent choice that he's asking these disciples to make. Okay, let's look at the next section here. So he asked this question. Peter gives the answer. You are the Christ and living God. And then look at this in 17. This, again, I mentioned this. This is so interesting. He says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar, not place for liquid refreshment. In this context, right? Bar, son of. Wait, 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 wait. Peter's just declared Jesus' identity, and what Jesus does now is declare Peter's identity. What's happening here? It must be that our identities are profoundly linked. The great identity of Jesus and our identity stemming from that. You are Simon Bar-Jonah. You are Simon, the son of Jonah. He's referring to his child reality. You are the child, the son of Jonah. That's who you are. You have a worth and indeed, that was part of the, the Hebrew Israelite mindset is your worth is connected to your family and your family of origin. There's still a reality that everyone comes from a family. Not everyone's necessarily raised in their family of origin. Not everyone's given a robust, healthy, strong family of origin. But everyone comes from that reality. This is like a fundamental human identity reality. We're children of our families. And Simon is a child of the destiny. Just what Jesus speaks to you right away. Back to Lucy Barton. So Lucy, we learn from other books, has grown up in a, she grew up in a violent and a, a terrifying home, a garage, incredible poverty. And so whenever Lucy gets into a time of panic, a time of distress, she's developed this habit where she'll say to her mother, and the author will say, not to her real mother, but to an imaginary mother, mommy, what do I do right now? It's a financial crisis or there's a relational crisis. Mommy, what do I do? And the author then says, Lucy would hear, not from her real mother, but her imaginary mother, oh, it's okay, honey, you're smart. You'll, you'll figure it out. It's so poignant. Because we do want to know, what would our mom say? What would our dad say, particularly if they were places of health, which isn't the case for everyone. It wasn't the case for Lucy, so she makes it up. Because there's a primordial identity we have as children. And Jesus is speaking to this. And speaking to this in Peter. So we have that worth as children. But then there's another worth. Because the earthly peace can be so confused, so broken. And God knows that. He says, you also have an identity as children in the kingdom of God. You have an identity as children that are connected to something greater than your family of origin. It's actually the work of the kingdom of God. And he's pointing Peter toward this as well. He'll say, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. Now, before we get that, just we'll back up. We read Isaiah 51. Look at that in your bulletin with me. This passage may or may not have been an inspiration to Jesus, but it's, it's, it's an Old Testament passage he would have known by heart. And then as God is speaking to the people of Israel in Isaiah 51, there in your bulletin, listen to me, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock 
from which you were hewn to the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, you come from me, kingdom of Israel. I am your king. You come from me. I have made you a nation. Your identity is from me. Look to who your identity is. And then within this kingdom of Israel, you actually have a spiritual mother and father. Look to Abraham, your father. Look to Sarah, your mother, implied, not so explicitly, who bore you. That there's actually a kingdom parentage. And if we have any Jewish followers of Jesus, this is your full heritage. And we as Gentiles get this as a full heritage because we're grafted in, Paul says. that this, We actually have a kingdom parentage in Abraham and Sarah. They are spiritual parents to us. This is very important to our identity that we have an origin story. And if, you're, if your own family origin story isn't robust or strong, you have a kingdom origin story. You have Abraham and Sarah. And then we know as we come into the reality of the church, Paul teaches that the church, she's like a bride. The church is a she and not an it in the teaching of the New Testament. And later the church fathers and early church thinkers will say, I talk about church as mother. The church has a kind of maternal ministry, a maternal reality for the church, like a Sarah in our lives. Indeed, St. Cyprian, early church thinker, third century bishop, famously said, no going to have God as father we don't have church as mother. And we might say, well, where's that in the Bible? It's more developed in the early church thinkers, but we see in 2 John, John's writing and says, to the elect lady and her children. And he says, from your elect sister and her children. He has this idea that there's kind of this maternal reality. He's writing to a church from a church. And there's a kind of maternal ministry of the church. And so we have this heavenly, excuse me, we have this earthly reality, this kingdom reality, but now we get to the most important reality. It's the heavenly reality. And we learn this in John chapter 1. We have the right to become children of God. That's your worth as a child above all things. Not of the flesh, but of God. How does Peter even know to say you are the son of the living God? Well, Jesus says... My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Second part of verse 17. That's your worth, Peter. That's your worth, Church of God. That's your worth, Stuart. You belong to the Father in heaven. I want to have Lucy Barton over for dinner with Catherine and me. I know she's an imaginary figure. I know we can't do that. But, but I want to have her for dinner, and I, I want to be able to say to Lucy, you don't have to make up a mom. Like, you don't have to do that. You have a father in heaven who truly does know you. Through his word and in prayer, he'll speak to you in Jesus. You have that worth, Lucy. It's not imagined. It's real. That's what it means to fully believe in God and to have your identity in God. So I can't say it to Lucy because she doesn't really exist. But you exist. I can say it to you. Based on the Bible, you've got a father. You've got a kingdom parentage. That's your worth. Stop working so hard to prove your worth. It's intrinsic in who God has made you to be as he saved you in Jesus. And because of that, you belong. You belong to Jesus and his church. That's also core to the identity of those who say you are the son of the living God. Okay, let's work on this last piece here. This is verses 18 to 19 especially. 
I tell you, you are Peter. Okay, some of you know that that's actually a nickname. His name was Simon, Bar-Jonah, but Peter, Petras, rock. That's the, that's the, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the cave hole, the gates of hell, the wickedness and the darkness shall not prevail against it. All right, <laughs> what, what is on this rock? There's been a whole lot of conversation going on for 2,000 years. Probably started with disciples afterwards. Like, what exactly did he mean by this rock? I mean, could he have been more specific? Um, so some scholars have said, particularly evangelical scholars, you know, this rock is the confession that Peter's made. You are the Christ. I think there's a lot of warrant in that. But let's explore this a little bit. Just says this rock, it seems very probable and possible he's pointing to this rock. Here it says the Rhea Philippi, this cave. This place of death. Why would Jesus say, I'm going to build my church on this place of death? Well, we get a clue as to why Jesus would say that in the very next passage in, ch in chapter 16. And if you have your Bibles, you get the bonus of realizing, wait a second. Right after this, Jesus teaches his followers that he must suffer many things be, and be killed. Could this rock be, yes, this rock of death, but this rock of my death that overcomes this death, on the rock of my death, on the rock of the cross, church of the cross, I will build my church. That's the kind of Messiah I am. Not coming with thousands of troops behind me, but coming with a Golgotha cross. With the death that will overcome death. On that I will build my church. Because my church has come to overcome death by death. My church is the army of the spiritually poor. My church is the army of those who take up their cross and follow me. My church is the army of those who build the church on the death of Christ. On this rock. And we will overcome this rock. Be assured, there are caves of pan that dot our landscape in 21st century America. Amen? This reality has not gone away. It is just as wicked and this is perverse and just as dark. It just takes on different forms. We need a rock of the church that can overcome that rock. And we have it in Jesus, Church of the Cross. It's part of your namesake on this rock. He foretold his death and that he would be crucified. But I think we also have the rock, son of the living God. I think it is his confession. Son of the living God. Because there's going to be another rock. There's going to be a rock that's going to be rolled away. And he's going to walk out of a rock that's a tomb. And he's going to rise from the dead and prove himself victorious over all evil, over our own dark, sinful hearts. And his church is going to have that message. His church is going to have that ministry. The church is willing to die to self will be the church that will rise with Christ. This is core to our identity, to our belonging. You belong to a place where folks look around if they're being honest and say, I need to die to my sin and I can live in Christ. What a place to belong. Anyone can belong in a place like that. Anyone who will repent and say, I need Jesus' life. I need the other stone as well, the other rock that was rolled away. Praise the Lord. Final little bit that I didn't give to the 9 o'clock. 
because I was worried about time. <laughs> but a 1045 bonus. Okay, I'll be brief. Um, but you got to ask, like, <laughs> now, like, what's going on with um, like keys and the kingdom? And then he says to the disciples, don't tell anybody who I am. Like, didn't Jesus in Matthew 28 say, go tell everyone who I am? What's happening? Okay, very briefly. Um, I think there's a third place we can go with rock. I mean, he does say to Peter, you are the rock, all right? So uh, our Roman Catholics interpret that as Peter is, is the first papal leader, the first pope. We as the Anglicans would say, no, we don't go there. We don't fully accept that. But we do see that Peter was a leader of the apostolic band, and he would be a leader of the church. There's a way in which not only is this, of course, the rock of Christ's death, the rock of Christ's life and resurrection, but it's the rock of authority, that he would actually give authority to his church, keys to open realities, and that, and that his church would minister in the power of Jesus, and by, by declaring forgiveness of sin, loose sin. The person has to repent, but loose sin. And there's an authority reality, too, in this rock. So I said there's three different ways we understand on this rock. And then he does this thing that scholars have called the messianic secret. He says, don't go tell people. Why? I would argue, and it's just something to work through. It's not always clear, but there is a progressive reality happening here. Things are unfolding, and they've just been given a whole new teaching about what his messiahship really means. And a whole new teaching of this is actually a kingdom built on death and resurrected life. You don't understand that yet. So don't go out and tell everyone yet. In a case where like, no, 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 they understood it. Peter gets called Satan in the next passage. Right? So he, they don't get it yet. So he's like, look, I'm still teaching you. You're still understanding my revelation. Don't go out yet in that regard. But once he's been resurrected and they understand the fullness of this rock on which I will build my church, in Matthew 20, he says, Go. And tell the nations. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because I would argue from the scriptures that has everything to do with how you answer the question, who am I? You have significance. You have worth. You have belonging because of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.